The CNN town hall was a catastrophe, but was Donald Trump maybe not the reason why? I'm Matt Robeson. This is Beyond Politics. We're available wherever you get your podcasts and, of course, on video on the Blue Amp channel on YouTube. And I'm very pleased to have with me Will Bunch, the national opinion columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer, author of several books, including Tear Down This Myth, The Right-Wing Distortion of the Reagan Legacy. He's won numerous journalism awards, and he shared the 1992 Pulitzer Prize for spot news reporting with the New York Newsday staff. Just fresh off the presses, like if they still run such things, <laughs> is his latest piece, which is titled On CNN, Lying Trump was a late night comedian for an America I didn't recognize. And here's the subhead. The scariest part of Trump's demoralizing CNN town hall wasn't his expected lies about January 6th and the 2020 vote. There's a little bit more. There's a little clause on the end of that subhead. But I want to get, let you get to that. But first of all, Will, welcome to Beyond Politics. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been a long time coming. We've You've been on my get list. And now we've got you. I won't tease the audience any longer. You expected everything about Donald Trump's performance. I think we all did. And your piece was so interesting because blamed the shit show on another party. Where do you lay the blame? Basically on the audience. I was watching this event last night, waiting to see what was it going to be that I didn't expect, right? Because to me, that was going to be the story, that there was going to be some moment in this 70-minute long event where I was going to say, whoa, I didn't see that coming. And as you as you summarized, it did not come from Donald Trump. He, he literally said nothing we had not heard from him before. But I feel I misinformed or misled, I guess is a better word, by CNN in terms of what they were telling us about the format. And they were saying, we're having this in front of the people who matter, which are the people who are going to be voting in the Republican primary in New Hampshire next year, and including people who say they're going to vote in the Republican primary, but claim to be undecided. And some of them will be people who voted for Trump or whatever. And my first thought is, okay, he'll probably get a couple sycophantic type questions, but maybe there'll be some people who support Ron to some of the earlier polls, DeSantis was actually doing well in New Hampshire. And I thought that there would be a mix of questions and a mix of people in the audience who wouldn't necessarily, that the idea wasn't that they were going to be rigged, to use Trump's favorite word, on Trump's behalf. And clearly, once the thing got going, that was not the case. Lines that I thought, oh my God, this is a cringeworthy lie, were getting applause from the crowd. And the moment that really I realized that the, the fix was in, I guess you would say, was when he went on that horrific rant about Eugene Carroll, the woman that a jury found that he sexually abused and then defamed by claiming that she had lied about it. You know, Trump, Trump did his basic, I don't know her, but she had a coming rant. And at the end, he said, I don't know, she's a whack job. And the crowd laughed. The crowd laughed like he was David Chappelle delivering a punchline on late night TV or something like that. It was like, I realized... That's when the idea crossed my head. It's for this crowd, Trump is like Johnny Carson. He's, it's like he's doing a monologue and they're laughing along at the familiar punchlines and the jokes they expect. And what worries me about the whole thing is you could say that didn't show you much. It just showed you that they were able to rig this audience and just get 400 Trump supporters in the room. But I think it shows what the polls are showing, which is that if you're a Republican, you are solidly behind Donald Trump. And everything that we... 
I should say everything we've learned about Trump in the last eight years, but certainly everything we've learned in the last two and a half years since since January 6th of 2021. The fact that we know that he attempted this coup to thwart the peaceful transfer of power. The fact that he's under criminal investigation for that, that he's under criminal investigation for taking documents. He's under criminal investigation in Georgia for election tampering. Now he's been indicted in New York for lying about hush money to help his campaign. And now we've had a jury find that, find for the woman in one of the multiple reported cases of sexual assault or sexual misconduct involving Trump. And yet, it hasn't changed one thing on the Republican side. That, that is what's truly scary, isn't yeah, it? It's right. that at a certain point, as the football coach Bill Parcells said, and I'm sure from your New York Newsday days, you remember this well, at a certain point, you are what your record says you are. And yeah. the Republicans are on the verge of nominating this man for the third straight time to be their presidential contender, their standard bearer. And this is the first time. It's like the immortal George W. Fool me once, shame <laughs> on you, but you don't get fooled again, or however he mangled <laughs> that. And maybe you can forgive people. Polls showed that in 2016, the majority of voters thought that he was some kind of a moderate. And in 2020, it's okay. Maybe, probably not. I could forgive Republicans for saying, all right, he's a maniac, but he is the incumbent president. We kind of want to win here. But this time, after an insurrection and in the midst of all of this, it really is, it really is staggering. I just want to drill down a little further on your point about the audience here, because there's been a lot of commentary about this, how sycophantic the audience seemed to be. It's very interesting, the setting here, as longtime listeners know, I worked as a political operative, as a chief of staff for a member of Congress, my co-host on the show, Paul Hodes in New Hampshire. I've been to the St. Anselm's Institute of Politics, I don't know how many times, and the executive director of that institution is a regular guest on this show. And they're, it, it's interesting, their most recent poll pegs Republican support in New Hampshire for Donald Trump at 42%. So he's leading the primary field. But what's weird is that, first of all, he is not getting majority support. That means 58% of likely Republican primary voters are voting for someone else. And he is the most recent president. And second of all, New Hampshire has this unusual system where you can same day re-register as if you're an independent, as a Republican and participate in the Republican primary. So this is all just to say that there was a screw up here somewhere. If the objective was to present a realistic picture of how Donald Trump's entire performative approach to this presidential contest would be received by the likely electorate he will face in New Hampshire, they did not hit that. They ended up with a room full of diehard MAGA people and that seems to be a major part of this. But on the other hand, you're arguing something different, which is you can say maybe they over-tilted toward MAGA land. But at the end of the day, this is on the Republican Party. He's going to be the nominee. At a certain point, you are what your record says you are. Yeah, I think you partly hit on what I personally found surprising or what, why I was surprised by the audience is because, like most political junkies, I've been aware on some levels of presidential elections going all the way back to 1968 when I was only nine years old, but my dad was working for Eugene McCarthy. So I certainly remember McCarthy's strong showing in the New Hampshire primary. And 
if it wasn't if it wasn't true already, I think that year really established this idea that's just embedded in your brain if you're a political junkie, which is that New Hampshire voters have this independence streak. I actually was up there in person and covered it in 2000 when John McCain beat George W. Bush was another example of these ornery independent New Englanders and their and their town select meetings and all of that. And I didn't see any of that last night. I saw an incredibly not independent, not free thinking, not live free or die kind of audience at all. I saw a group of followers, a group of people who wanted to be part of the pack. So I think that surprised me to some degree. And yeah, I, I saw that poll that you referenced where Trump was only at 42%. And the thing is, even if the anti-Trump streak in the Republican Party persists and is still out there, it's looking more and more like the 2016 strategy of divide and conquer, where Trump won't people forget how low his percentage was in some of those early primaries that he won. I forget what his I forget what his percentage was in when he won New Hampshire in 2016, but it was probably less than 50% because he didn't really start getting 50% until he was down to just one or two opponents at the very end. So he manipulates that. I have a hunch though, at this point, I the recent events, the indictment, the the Gene Carroll case. They're, they just seem to be rallying Republicans behind Trump. They're not, they don't seem to be turning the, anybody against Trump. That the people aren't looking at the allegations, they're looking at the accusers. The, the people are blaming the messenger, they're blaming the media. One of the, one of the biggest applause points or whoops or whatever you want to call it from the audience last night was when he called Caitlin Collins a nasty woman. And that's what's that's what struck me about the several... Trump rallies. And it was ironic because this wasn't supposed to be a Trump rally. It was supposed to be a town hall. But I've been to Trump rally. And the most powerful force by far was hatred of the news media. Mm. Yeah. That this, this notion that there's economic anxiety in the heartland. And I've been to I've been to these Trump rallies in central Pennsylvania, and I didn't hear one peep of economic anxiety. I heard lots of peeps about how much people hated CN that CN sucks. And and that, that's a lifeblood, the oxygen of this movement. And this, is, this is exactly what former New Hampshire Senator Judd Gregg captured in a really perceptive 2016 quote, where he said that Trump supporters don't really care about anything that he does, as long as he keeps sticking his thumb in the eye of the people they don't like. And that's essentially, it sounds like what you're picking up from last night is that you would think that most normie human being reactions to what he did would be disgust, revulsion, or at least some sense of, hey, you know what? I think we've gone over the line where I feel comfortable at this point, but maybe he's shifted their Overton window, or maybe it's just what Judd Gregg said. As long as he's attacking the media and attacking liberals and attacking women, because there's a lot of aggrieved men out there, they're like, okay, that feels good to me. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Yeah, I think that's it exactly. And I think that's why it's so disappointing that they didn't rethink the format. And I'm sure Trump and his campaign people would not have gone for this. I can imagine a totally different town hall if they had just gotten 400 representative New Hampshire people, including Democrats. Because you saw it in subtle ways. One one thing that, that I mentioned both on Twitter last night and I mentioned again in my column this morning, which didn't get much attention at all because there was so much other stuff going on, 
But when you look at the questions that were asked in the audience, the one one that really stuck in my mind was they go, let's go to a, let's go to a Saint Anselm's student, and of course it was the of course it was the head of the College of Republicans at Saint Anselm. So you knew it was going to be a pro-Trump question, and his question was about guns, which is my gosh, the biggest issue of the last week, the mall the mall shooting in Texas. Everybody's talking about this, and the the young person's question was. What was Trump going to do to deter the people who were trying to take away our gun rights? And it's just so not representative of where the majority of the public is at these days. It's um, it's like that scene out of The Simpsons, right, where Lisa set up with a question, Mr. Burns, your campaign has the momentum of a runaway freight train. Why are you so popular? I mean, yeah, um, I, I can't people, imagine a bigger softball. Yeah, most of the questions were like that. Think how much more powerful a moment it would have been if somebody stood up there and said, President Trump, as they were calling him, and they should have called him ex-President Trump or whatever, but if somebody stood up and said, President Trump, I, I just watched the video of this mall shooting in Texas, and I'm horrified that everyday people can go out and get these weapons of war that are only good for killing other human beings. What are you going to do as president to stop this? And that would have been a powerful question. It would have probably provoked a much more newsworthy answer. He probably, Trump probably would have been compelled to defend the NRA, but it would have looked terrible. To have the college Republican getting up and how are you going to stop the gun grabbers, Mr. President, is just, was a missed opportunity. And like I said, I'm sure, I'm sure if CNN told the audience that we're going to, told, excuse me, I'm sure if CNN had told Trump that we're going to have 200 Democrats in the audience, they would have canceled the event. He didn't want that kind of... Let me try this out on you. I'm going to do what is, the kids would call this one weird trick. This is one weird trick for having an effective opinion column. And I'm going to run this by you because you are a literal Pulitzer Prize winning columnist. It's frequently a good idea at some point in your opinion column to say the to be sure or the here's why I could be wrong clause and then to disprove it. So my caveat up front is, I do not agree with what I'm about to present to you, but here's where you and I could be wrong. There is a case to be made, and actually the Politico got a hold of a recording from an editorial meeting that Chris Lick, the CEO of CN, held with his team this morning, a debrief, in which he thought that the whole thing was a triumph, and he made the case that it did exactly what the media should be doing and what they intended it to do. And his argument was, in terms of the crowd, I'm quoting, while we may all have been uncomfortable hearing people clapping, that was also an important part of the story because the people in that audience represent a large swath of America and the mistake the media made in the past is ignoring that those people exist, just like you cannot ignore that President Trump exists. And then he goes on to say, in terms of the news value of the event, There was so much that we learned last night about what a second Trump presidency would look like. You do not have to like the former president's answers, but you can't say that we didn't get them. So look, in a nutshell, what he's saying is maybe we did America a service by putting Trump in front of this pliant crowd that was going to lap up everything he did and letting him expose himself. We know he plays to applause. We know he plays to the crowd. We know he uses that as a barometer of what's working, what's not. And by basically drawing him out into all of his most disgusting shtick, they put it on display for the American people. 
Does he have a point? Yeah, yes and no. Where I'll start with where I disagree with what he said, which is we know Trump has supporters. He was elected president of the United States in 2016. We know that there are people who support Donald Trump and he got 74 million votes in, in, in 2020. So that's nothing new. So, that, so ha- having a pro-Trump crowd there, I don't think revealed anything to the American public. It just, it just gamed the system so that middle of the road people watching it were thinking, yeah, what, what Trump's saying makes sense to these people. He might, maybe he's onto something. But it's like the justification for that part of it just doesn't fly. But what I will say, though, is, and I actually made this point in my weekly newsletter that ran, that came out Tuesday morning before the event, which is that we have seen that there is a part of the American electorate. It's not a big part, but it's a significant enough part of the electorate who you know, is swayed by reality. And if you look what happened in 2020, we had this small but significant swing of voters away away from Trump in 2016 to voting against Trump for Biden in 2020. And I think the thing that really killed Trump in that 2020 election was he was doing those daily COVID-19 briefings and they were terrible. He looked dumb and he was getting on people's nerves. And I think and that was when you saw him start to drop in the polls, right? When when he was having those briefings. So I think I think there is something to what Lick says that that we can, you know, that in in the various hot houses of politics, whether it was the crowd at that event or whether it's the way people react on Twitter, we forget that there's this group of it's not a lot, 10 million, 20 million actual swing voters out there who maybe maybe seen Trump live on TV last night, not that many were watching, but the, the ones who did watch last night, maybe seen him look ridiculous and in, in saying that the 2020 election was rigged. Or, it runs a risk though, doesn't yeah. it? Because it runs afoul of the H.L. Mencken quote that the democracy is the theory that the American people know what they want and they deserve to get it good and hard. And we've gotten it good and hard at least for four years. And we've, as a country, really reaped the results of that misguided decision. And we're running the risk here that you can present a, here's the unvarnished what he does and says, and here's the unvarnished what the other side says, and you guys sort it out. You'll figure it all out. We've seen that not work very well. We see we saw it not work very well here in 2016. We saw it not work very well in the UK when it came to Brexit. And when you have these kind of binary decisions that the American people need to make, you run the risk of it can be normalizing. You see him on CN, he gets to make his case without pushback, and you're just relying on the American people's bullshit detector to say, no, this is gross. We don't like it when a crowd is whooping, when you when you further defame a victim of your sexual assault. You have to trust the people. And look, I'm not saying I don't trust the American people, but as your kind of media colleague, Mark Jacob, a former Chicago Tribune editor and recent guest on the show, has said, it is the media's responsibility. This is my view on it. I'm editorializing here, but it's the media's responsibility to provide the context sandwich to. And Caitlin Collins, I think she was put in an absolutely impossible position. I'm not criticizing her per se. I'm criticizing the network but there was no way for her to keep up with a fusillade of crap coming out of Trump's mouth. There was no way for her to do what she needed to do, which is to provide the context sandwich, to say on the front end, here is the truth. 
And then he says his BS. And then she says, everything you just said, it's the my cousin Vinny defense. Everything that guy just said is bullshit. And I, to me, I ultimately come down on the side of that is a failing. That is a failing. Right. But maybe Chris Lick has a little sliver of a point that we can cross our fingers and hope that, that people will get it. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Yeah, the, re the reason I became an opinion journalist that uh, you cited some really good recent examples with those recent elections and you mentioned Brexit. But for me, I guess it's going back a few years, but it was during the Iraq war and the way that the lies of the George W. Bush administration weren't challenged enough by the media in the Iraq war. And I said, that's because the way we're doing this isn't just isn't working. We didn't inform the public about what was really happening and maybe it needs a different voice. And if I have to, if I'm going to switch from news reporting where I've done for many years and had done well, but switch to opinion journalism, maybe that maybe adding my little voice onto the pile, maybe that'll help. And and so ever since the mid 2000s, I've gotten on that assumption that on one hand, on the other hand, journalism has been pretty much a failure. It's been a system that people can manipulate and game. We saw it manipulated last night. And so- Yes, know. I used to run into this problem, both as a congressional staffer and as a state legislative staff, staffer. Actually, I'll give an example since we're talking New Hampshire from the time, from during the time that I was a staffer in the New Hampshire State Senate. We had a Republican state senator with whom I enjoyed actually a, a very good relationship. I, people can still do that behind the scenes. Yeah. And he wanted to hold a hearing in which he aired the views of people who were YouTube algorithm, don't ding me for saying these words out loud. These were people who were against vaccines. And he was like, just give them a chance to say their thing. And for our audio listeners right now, Will knows wh where I'm going with this. He just, you just rolled your eyes yeah, exactly. correctly, appropriately, because that never works. No. Presenting this as a both sides thing is always inherently confusing. The lie is halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to put its pants on. There have been multiple psychological studies on this. It's what I call the Democrats asymmetry problem, which is Republicans have the advantage of just saying in four words, some piece of total malarkey. And then it takes me about 40 words to unpack why it's malarkey. And at that point, half the audience is asleep. And it's yeah. just so much easier to say the BS at the beginning. That's the problem you run into is that Maybe over time, people sort all this out, but it does seem insufficient to me to have kind of the PBS News Hour model where it's, let's hear from both sides on this. Some things there, there really isn't a both sides to. There, there's just, there's one set of facts. There, there aren't Kellyanne Conway's alternative facts. There's just not. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that really got me going in this direction was climate change, because here you had a side of billion dollar corporations that had literally billions of dollars to gain by misleading the public. And they realized that balanced journalism, that journalists have to give equal weight to both sides, was their foot in the door, that the, this was science. There really wasn't both sides. There's been many studies of climate and man-made global warming has been proven again and again to be a reality. But to get that foot in the door and claim we're the other side, you need to give us 50%. Even when it's just these bogus think tanks funded by mega oil companies, is is how the system is manipulated. And we, but we've seen it 
but we've seen it manipulated in so many different ways. And and last night at the end of the day was was a manipulation as well, maybe of a slightly different sort. But I think the American public was being manipulated. They were being manipulated in, into thinking that Trump's shtick is more popular than it is because people are laughing. It's I just when I was saying that I just all of a sudden the I don't know if you were a fan of Joe Jackson, the, the new wave era musician, but one of his big hit songs, I'm the man, was about conning people basically through advertising and that sort of thing. And in, there's a line in the song where it's like, okay, can't, can't you hear me laughing? Can't you see me smiling? I'm the man. And that's it. Hey, we're all laughing and having a good time. What's wrong with you? Don't you, don't you get it? Aren't you part of the in crowd? And that's the vibe. Trump's people were said to be thrilled after the event last night. And I think that's why, because they were, it's one thing for him to spout his nonsense on Truth Social, like he does all the time. But last night, he spouted his nonsense in front of 400 people, and they laughed and applauded. And it's and, and 3 million people watched that happen. And, and it's as old as Greek theater. It's as old as vaudeville. This is why comedians put plants in the audience to laugh. Yeah. This is why they hold up the cards, laugh when you film exactly. sitcoms in front of a live audience, because it's a social reaction. People take their cues. This is how Stetson Kennedy led the campaign to kill the K back in the 50s with frown power to try and give some social pushback to, right. hey, you know what? There's a cue here for all you people. This is bad. You should think you should look at this and you should frown because this is bad. I know you've got to get out of here. Let me get you out of here on this by taking it full circle. It's been it's been a bad few weeks, as Tom Nichols said in the Atlantic this morning, for the people who have polluted the waters of American politics. There was yet the late gang of seditionists found guilty. The leaders of the Proud Boys have now joined the leaders of the Oath Keepers. They're going to prison because they led an insurrection egged on by Donald Trump. Donald Trump was found liable for sexual abuse and defamation in the Eugene Carroll case. George Santos was indicted, and he's probably going to prison. And Donald Trump was indicted for his multiple instances, 34 counts of fraud. And it does seem like the arc of the moral universe is tending in a good direction right now. And yet, I want to bring it back to your core point, which is about the people. You know, Hillary Clinton may have committed an awful gaffe when she re referred to Trump's supporters as deplorables. That was a bad idea. It put them all under an umbrella. It was a bad idea politically. But she wasn't wrong from the standpoint of there is a segment of America and Donald Trump fits into it that are deplorable. They're unreachable. They're, there's no way to get through to them. But I'm curious about your thoughts on the rest of them. There are people in the Republican Party who may have supported Trump before, who, as you were referred to a moment ago, are reachable. There, we may find a way to break out of this. How are you feeling right now about the prospects of bringing the people who are still going along with Trump out from under his sway? It's hard. I think big picture, after, after several years of this, we've finally looked towards the hard and fast legalities of the justice system to, in some ways, accomplish what we couldn't accomplish politically. Tell telling people what Trump was doing or what George Santos was doing is wrong only seemed to get us so far. We had to have that power of the legal system come down on them. But in, in the mafia, they say, what is this, the fish stinks in the head, or you cut the head off and you cut the organization. But 
This is different. This is not like that, I don't think, because I think what Trump showed is there there were millions of people, and maybe not all 74 million who voted for him, who had different, maybe some of them are just diehard Republicans or whatever, but you million, tens of millions of people who supported Trump were looking for somebody to put a voice to what they were feeling that nobody else was, that the, these resentments, these resentments of college-educated elites, the, these fears about race and about women, about the old social orders of misogyny and white privilege and white supremacy, these old social orders falling apart. But they were looking for somebody to step up and defend them. And, and Mitt Romney or John McCain, those people were not cutting it for them. And, and then here comes Trump, and they keep saying, finally, here's a guy who tells it like it is. And when they say he tells it like it is, what they're really saying is that Trump, Trump was triggering their deep-seated feelings in a way that other politicians weren't. And unfortunately, a lot of these deep-seated feelings were bad, were antisocial, were anti-progress. And the thing is, that switch has been turned on, right? If, if somehow Trump ends up in handcuffs and he's dragged off to the federal pen in Atlanta or whatever, these people aren't going to disappear. They're going to be mad. And they may be looking for somebody who's more retributive, or I'm not sure what the right word is, who's more who's going to be more punishing to their enemies in the media and college professors and all the people they don't like. They're going to be looking for some, they're going to be looking for what Trump promised them at that rally recently in Waco, which is retribution. That was, to me, that's the key word of the 2024 campaign. Trump's promise of retribution on behalf of these people. And if Trump can't deliver it, they're going to look for somebody else who will. And I think, I, I think that's the significance here. And that's why, and it's hard because people say, I, I got a lot of positive feedback to my column, but as I expected, I also got some people saying that I'm putting, I'm giving too much weight to this movement that, that we know from, <clears throat> that we know from the 2020 election that they're not a majority. You're talking about a third or 40% of the public. And I don't know. I think that's the attitude that lost 2016 is not taking the movement seriously. And I think, I think we need to take it seriously. And we don't have political conversations in this country about how we, it's like when we invaded Iraq, you know, how do we, how do we get these terror groups in Iraq to disband and go their separate ways and become part of a civil society? We honestly should be having that kind of conversation in the United States. And I think we don't know how to have it. I think education is critical. That's why I just wrote a whole book about college and higher education and how that intersects with our politics. My, my book, After the Ivory Tower Falls, is looking at that. And but I mean, that's a fix that would take years and years. But I think we need to be talking about how we fix this. We're just going to be, it's going to be Groundhog Day, and we're just going to be having the same types of problems over and over again until we do something. It's a truly scary thought and the idea of Trump on a retribution tour in 2024 and what would happen should he be successful is truly scary. But I have good news. I think after you invoke the image of Donald Trump being hauled off to prison in handcuffs, you lost most of our audience who descended into a reverie of their own enjoyment. And I'm going to let them, I'm going to let them stay there. I'm going to let them enjoy that image. Will Bunch, your writing is fantastic. You really hit the nail on the head, not just with this one, but your weekly column. And people can get your newsletter if they go to inquirer.com slash bunch. And it's worth checking out. Thanks so much for being with us on Beyond Politics. Oh, yeah. Thanks so much. I've been seeing your show and thrilled to be actually a guest. I appreciate it.